The opportunity, whoa. Uh, am I good now? All right, I'm glad I have the opportunity to worship this morning with you. Uh, I'm blessed every time I get to share God's Word, whether it's in a Bible study or discipleship or with the youth or even uh, with a small child in children's church. Uh, the opportunity to share who God is with anyone should be an honor to us. And so when I get the opportunity to stand before all of you, I'm so thankful and blessed by God. I'm grateful that Pastor Joe allowed the youth an opportunity to experience ministry in a new way. That those of you who typically serve, uh, whether it's to serve coffee and donuts or greet at the doors or pass out things or pray, that you would stand aside so that someone else can step up. And they can be allowed to experience something that God is asking of them as they go forward in life. See, I think I've been praying a lot about a youth Sunday and processing what would that look like, what would we do, why would we do it. And my goal for this service is twofold. You know, I wanted the congregation to be able to see and hear from and serve alongside of our youth. The second was to push these students to see the places that so many of you serve within this church. One of the challenges of youth ministries and one of our main goals is to allow these students to take hold of their faith and begin to minister now and as they go forward into life. Because the reality is, if I have one of your students in youth group, that within six years, they're going to be gone. They're going to be out on their own at school or at work or whatever they may, God may lead them to do. And it's now is when they need to take hold of what Jesus is doing in their life. And I appreciate and am so grateful that we are at a church that encourages and supports the spiritual growth of our students. And so this morning... I wanted them to have the opportunity to share with you, to share with you who they are and what they're doing. And I want to take just a few moments before I start to, to talk about what, the youth, what is going on within the youth ministry, where we're headed, what we're doing. Uh, and it's been an amazing experience to be part of what God is doing within this church, to see the growth of not only our students, but all of our ministries. And it's fun sometimes to get up and share with you about what's going on in a ministry that I'm engaged in. Oftentimes, youth ministry in churches is the most overlooked group of kids. You get a group of junior high boys, and you often don't know what to do with them. Uh, they have more energy in one of them than 25 adults. And the reality is you stick 20 of them in a room together, and you're like, what am I supposed to do? And so it's a great, fun experience, but oftentimes they get overlooked. And we have so many youth with talents and gifts that they're able to honor God with. And we're so grateful. Our junior high meets on Wednesday nights. And here's the cool thing about our ministry. The majority of our kids do not go to this church. You might look around and see some of our kids here today, but the majority of our students do not go to a church at all. We do have some that attend other churches that are here with us this morning, and we're happy to have them. So on a regular Wednesday night, we have somewhere between 25 to 30 students. Uh, that's just our junior high ministry. And the majority of those kids do not show up at a church on a Sunday morning. And it's so awesome to see them and to see the excitement and to see what they can take home to their families. Uh, I was one of those students that got to experience Christ outside of a family that, came to that didn't come to church. And I got to go home and share that with my family. And I'm hoping that one day my family will finally hear God's call. But the reality is that we have amazing students do amazing things. They are so good. Oftentimes, I show up on Wednesday night, and one of them comes up to me and like, hey, I brought a friend tonight. And I'm like, we don't have any room for your friends. Uh, and they're so good at continually to invite their friends and share the gospel. And the reality is that our students deal with hardships within the school. 
rejection for their faith. And so we unite together and we get cool, bright t-shirts and we have an opportunity for them to share something with their neighbors. Now our senior high ministry meets on Sunday night and the group's a little smaller. But here's the cool thing and what I really love about it. Uh, We have like 10 to 12 kids on a regular Sunday night and I have the opportunity to like sit down and talk with them and see what's going on in life and watch them grow and get to experience kind of each one of them. And the coolest thing about youth ministry is a few years down the road when they're all gone and I get to hear stories about what they're doing, it's exciting. I have a few youth from Iowa that I stay in contact with. Uh, One just moved to India to serve a year in an orphanage to share the gospel. What an exciting thing to be part of what God is doing. And so I'm grateful and excited to see what these students are going to do, what they're going, how they're going to grow and how God is going to use them. As I get the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning, I'm going to share with you what our students are hearing from God in His Word this year. As you look around, you may notice bright blue anointed shirts with the word radical across the chest. This year, all of our youth gatherings Our teaching times, our Bible studies, are about living a radical life. See, the cool thing about Jesus is that he teaches a lot about how we should live, act, and be. And when we compare that to everyone else, we realize that Christ is calling us to something different, something bigger, something most likely a lot harder. But to most people, we look like radicals. Everything we do, the way we act, the way we treat people, the way we go about life, the choices we make, to the outside, to people looking at those who follow Christ, we look like radicals. Why would you choose to live a life like that? And so I want to share a little this morning about what that radical life looks like. To give you an idea of what we're teaching your students and their friends, what they hear on a Wednesday or a Sunday or any time that we meet together. So before we jump into the Word, if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Jesus. That he would willingly step down from heaven to become a servant, to give his life, to go to the cross for us. And I thank you that he would call all kinds of people to him. Young and old, short and tall. He calls everyone to him. And we're so, so grateful. We're grateful that we have students here to lead worship and to enjoy the ministries that you've called this church to do. And so, Father, I thank you for those students. I thank you for your word, Lord. The opportunity to share is a great privilege. I thank you for the chance to to share the heart you've given me for people. And so, Father, I ask that you speak through me this morning, that as we share in your word, that you would be at the forefront of everything that it all be about Jesus. And so, Father, we pray all of these things in His holy name. Amen. Now, if you take a close look at the shirts around you, under the radical word, you'll see a reference to a Bible passage. You can't have a youth shirt without some scripture. Uh, and it's Matthew 22, 37-40. And most of you probably know this is, This is the reference to the great commandments that Jesus told to those following him. In this passage, the Pharisees or the teachers of the law were scheming of a way to cause Jesus to stumble. So they proposed a question to him meant to stir up trouble. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? But see, in Jesus' usual tone, he likes to answer questions with questions or you assume that he's completely subverting 
the question you asked, but what he actually is doing is he's going right to the heart of the matter. He's avoiding the technicalities and the pitfalls that they were hoping to trap him with. You see, the Pharisees, while they obsessed about the law and following in every detail, they completely missed what the law was meant to be teaching. The law was designed to push us, push us out of what our comfort zone is. To step away, to learn who God was, to see holiness. That was the design of the law, to draw us near to him, not to push us away. To live a life that is completely radical to those around us. Being a Christian is about so much more than living by a checklist. It seems like Jesus makes it easy, right? Love our God. Love our neighbors. But doing that is more challenging, life-altering, and radical than anything we've ever done. Do you know what it takes to love God with everything you have? Throughout the gospel, Jesus lays it out, what it will take to have a relationship with God and how we can live that out in our own lives. If you would turn to Luke 9, uh, 57, we're gonna, that's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, here in Luke, people are gathered around Jesus watching him. Whether it's to hear him teach or to watch him perform miracles, Jesus is polarizing. Jesus still today is polarizing. Whether it's from hate or love or respect or scariness, Jesus makes people think and talk about life. Whether it's he doesn't exist or look how amazing it is, he draws people to him. And as he teaches and in his, during his ministry, all kinds of people are gathering around him. They want to see his miracles. They want to see who he is. They, some of them even actually want to follow him. But Jesus, when he teaches, tells the truth. And sometimes the truth is really, really hard. He begins to tell the followers of what the cost of having a relationship with him will be like. If you call yourself a Christian or a follower of Christ, there is a cost. Following Jesus is so appealing when you hear things about loving your neighbor or living with joy or having a family or all these great exciting things that are shared throughout Scripture that are very much true, that we get excited. But the reality is there's more to it than that. It's not about a donation here or there, or singing a few songs. It's about more than that. And as we follow Christ, He will lay out the cost. In the final paragraph of Luke chapter 9, which is what I'm going to read in a second, it focuses on three volunteer disciples. That's what we're going to call them. They were coming to Jesus. They were walking beside Him in this probably this gigantic crowd and when Jesus was traveling around, people had questions. They wanted to ask him stuff. Some people just wanted to touch him because they wanted healed. But these, these guys wanted something from Jesus. They wanted to be volunteer disciples. Each man offers to follow Jesus. Luke has each man give us one statement regarding their commitment. He then reports to us what Jesus has to say to each man in response to his offer. There's something wrong with the commitment of each one of these men. The first of these appears to volunteer unconditionally. The second appears to have an emergency which will delay his commitment, but only for a little bit. The third volunteer seems ready to follow Jesus immediately, but he wants first to say goodbye to his family. In each case, the commitment to follow Jesus honestly seems sincere and looks right. And that level of commitment, it just it looks like a good thing. What they're saying looks like a good thing, but we have to realize what Jesus says to them. Jesus knows things that we don't know, and he's going to talk about it here. If you'd read with me. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow 
and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, they all had responses of a desire to follow Jesus, but there was always something about what they were asking that Jesus cut to the heart of it. That's what Jesus does. He understands who we are because he was there when we were created. He knows our hearts and who we are, and he knows what we're asking when we truly ask. And the first man, the volunteers, Jesus doesn't respond to him in excitement of great things to come. He's not like, hey, you're following me. That's great. Let's go. He says in verse 28, or verse 58, Jesus punches right at the heart of the man and the cost of that decision. Jesus wanted him to understand some of what he would have to go through. If he was interested in what would have no in if he was interested in what he would he would want to know what Jesus was asking of him. And so Jesus responds in, hey, I don't belong. I don't have any place that I'm going to lay my head down. Everywhere that I go, people are going to hate me. Matthew chapter 10 and John chapter 15 both say this. They say, if you don't worry if you're following me and people hate me because they hated me first. If you want to follow me, you have to understand the cost that those around you may not like what they see. The cost of following Jesus is a great commitment. I can hear some of the questions that Jesus has that he doesn't say. Jesus really wanted him to think about, are you sure you want to follow me? I don't belong here. Are you willing to head to the cross, to be rejected and hated, to give up your desires for God's? Jesus points the truth out to those that follow. No matter how hard the truth is, Jesus wants our heart to be about him. So we move on to the second man. Now the second man receives an invitation from Jesus. Come follow me. And his response is, I first need to go bury my father. Now that seems legitimate, right? You probably should bury your father if he passes away. But the reality is he's saying one of two things to Jesus. Either to that day he got the news that his father had passed away and he must go home and make preparations for the burial of his father. Or most likely, what he's saying is, hey, my father's getting up there in age. I'm the oldest son. My inheritance is coming. Let me go home. Let me take care of my father. And when he passes away and life is settled, and I have all this stuff, then, then I will come follow you. Jesus challenges the idea of the young man has that you have to get everything lined up and ready and then you can start following Christ. I've often heard this when talking to students. Hey, let me just get it figured out first. Jesus doesn't call us to figure it out. He knows we can't. We have no chance of figuring out how to live life without him. He doesn't say, hey, how's life going? Are you, are you ready to follow me? He calls this guy just to follow. I don't care about all of those other things. Let the dead bury their dead. We have so many pressures and responsibilities, and often we question how devoting our life fully to Christ will affect those. With students, it's getting involved in too many extracurricular activities, sports, music, dancing, clubs. Adults struggle with these as well wanting to get their families, finances, careers, or hobbies in order before surrendering it all. Are we caught up in the world? We're often caught up in the world and its pressures. And Jesus' response is clear. Drop it all and run to me. Everything else will fall into place after that. Give it all and share it all. Which matters more? Being a soccer star, a football player, having a well-manicured lawn, reaching the next level in your career, or sharing Christ with those who spend eternity separated from Him. That's Christ's response to Him. Hey, come follow me and go share who I am with everyone else. Don't worry about all that stuff. I think oftentimes in life we get so caught up 
in, in living and in, in going to work or school and getting all that done and we miss out on real life. We miss out on the opportunities that Jesus is offering us because we're not paying attention. And so we go on to the third guy who doesn't want to pay attention. The third follower, he's worried about his family. Again, I think this is a great response. Jesus, you want me to follow me? I should go tell my family first because I might be gone a while. Sounds good, right? <clears throat> I remember when I told my family that I wanted to be a youth pastor, and this was the response I got. They don't make very much money, do they? And I, I was like, well, that's not the point. And they're like, well, how are you going to provide for yourself? And I was like, well, God provides. He provides through the people of the church, and, and they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And this man, you know, it, it seems hard, harmless. It seems like he has true concern for his family, that he's being considerate. The amazing thing about Christ, though, is he knows our hearts. He knows what we're actually praying when we pray. If you've ever went to, uh, in college, we got to do a lot of different ministry opportunities. We got to go to different places to see something. And uh, several times I got to go to the correctional facility downtown for students uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And the common prayer that I always heard from the kids was, can you pray that I get out because I didn't do anything wrong? And I, and I told them that I would pray that God leads them to the right place in life. That I would not pray that they just be released because God knows our heart. And even if we pray for something, he knows what we're really truly asking for. He knew as this man said, I am going to go talk to my family. He knew what it meant. The follower while professing his desire to actually follow is really trying to walk forward, but keep everything in his view. See, if you were ever driving a plow at this point in the day, uh, with your ox and your plow, if you turn, your plow is going to turn too. And I, I know some farmers, and I don't think they would like crooked rows to plant their stuff in. And that's what Jesus is telling him. You go back to your family and you're going to wander off the path. It's not about his family. It's not that his family is the problem. It's just Jesus knows his heart and what he's actually saying when he says, I need to go talk to your fam my family. Jesus knew if he let him go, those distractions will keep him from keeping his eyes focused on him. As you follow Christ, what are the things that keep you peeking back? that grabs your eyes away from the Lord. In each of these cases, Christ was calling these followers to make a hard choice. He was asking them to face the reality of their situations, that they were going to lose things if they followed him. They were going to lose possessions, jobs, hobbies, careers, friends, and even family. As we are called to Christ, we face the same obstacles. In reality... What's the choice going to cost us? Now, I want to share a little story with you. Some of you have heard most of this probably, but I want to share it again. <clears throat> when Jenny and I were in Iowa, uh, we were on an internship. So my senior year, we moved to Iowa to take on an internship at a church. And uh, it was, so it turned into a nine-month internship. So I graduated while I was on an internship. And while I was there, I be, we began to search for churches. So once we knew that once I graduated, I would be able to start applying uh, for a youth pastor role at churches. And so we began doing that. Uh, and as, as that was going on, the youth pastor that was there was stepping back more and more from the roles that he was doing. Uh, God was calling him to another place, and he was kind of handing things off to me. So when my internship was ending, uh, Jenny and I went out and got just normal jobs. And we lived in a town about the size of Chillicothe. So we, those were our options. Uh, there was no Peoria 15 minutes away. The next town was 
45 minutes. And so we got jobs that we didn't love, that didn't pay great, but we, we were surviving. Uh, and we were waiting, and we were hopeful, and we were excited for this next phase of life that God was calling us into. He was calling us to go serve in a church. He had given me the heart for youth ministry, and I kid you not, and I talked to a student about the other day, that this is not what I wanted to do. I went to college to be a missionary, and then I decided while I was there that that's not what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to work at the local church, and then I realized when I was on internship for a youth pastor that I was like, huh, God sent me here because I love kids and I want to work with them. And it's been an awesome experience. So I was, we were getting excited. The next stage of life was about to kick off. And so we were happy with our jobs, even though we didn't like them that much. But we knew that God was taking care of us. And so I began to take on more and more responsibilities in the youth ministry. And eventually I was basically running it. I was working full-time in a job. And I was working full-time running this youth ministry. And it was exciting. And finally, at one point, the youth pastor finally stepped down. And he moved. And I continued to serve in the youth ministry And there came a point when the church decided that they would start hiring. And so Jenny and I were super, super excited, and we applied. Because we knew that that was what God was calling us into. So this was a church that we loved. And we still do, just so I'm clear. Uh, It was the church that Jenny grew up in. And we were excited because we knew that this is where God had called us to. Like we had no doubt in our mind, people were coming to us and saying, hey, we feel that God has called you to this spot. So the hiring process started and they went with someone else. And I want you to imagine what we went through. And it was, it was hard. But the church that we loved and poured countless hours of energy what they didn't say this to us but what it felt like was you're not good enough and i'm like well i know that but jesus is and this is where he called us and we were being told told no and it was one of the hardest years of mine and jenny's life so We found out that there were people saying things and doing things, and we realized that this was a great struggle that God was going to pull us through. The amount of spiritual growth that Jenny and I went through in that year was amazing. The guy that they hired, Jenny and I are really good friends with. Like, it's crazy what God does in situations. It's crazy what he asked of us to do with the cost we will have to pay. But here's, here's where it got bad. There was a point, it was probably a few months before Joe contacted me, that I was like, I'm done. I, I was going to be done with youth ministry. I was going to be done with ministry. Jenny and I were just going to move away, find some jobs. Jenny is very gifted and could just do about anything and has a degree in biology. And I could have worked at a factory or something. Uh, but the reality is, we were done. We were like, God, what, what is going on? And I remember just sitting down and God coming to me and saying, I, I've got it all under control. And so then we continued to apply to churches and Pastor Joe contacted us. And I do want to share this funny story. So we were talking on Skype, and I think it was Mark that came in late. Uh, and we were, I was talking with the elders and Pastor Joe, and I remember, and I got off. Jenny was like in the other room hiding as I talked to them. And we were, we were scared and excited. And I remember Mark specifically because I was like, Jenny, that guy was really scary. <laughs> I, I kid you not, I was like, there is no way they're calling me back. Mark was terrifying. And then, I kid you not, I met him and I was like, why did I ever think that he's the nicest guy in the world? But I was honestly like, this is not going to work. He is, he's scary. Uh, sorry, Mark. Uh, but we, we had to pay some cost to get here. 
And at times, he's calling us to something, and we search the scriptures, and we pray, and we seek affirmation from those around us. We may not understand why either. And we still have to pay a cost. But no matter what we are called to sacrifice, is the, the truth is that Jesus already paid the biggest price and the biggest cost of following him. It's already done. He gave his life, showed his power, and promised life abundantly when we follow him. He went to the cross so that we could have life, not be consumed by it. So you may be sitting there saying, if it's that hard, why would I want to do this? Because I think that's a valid question, and I think it's a question that's often asked. People look at Scripture, they see all the laws, they see all the, the tough things. I don't get to have any fun if I follow Jesus. So why do it? Why do I, as a youth pastor, push our students to draw closer to God? Because the reward is amazing. We often look at the cost of following Christ, but we must also look at the reward for doing it as well. See, believing in Jesus, his death, and his resurrection means we get to spend eternity with God. And he also provides us a way to find joy here on earth. Now, I uh, had the privilege of attending a youth conference yesterday. Uh, the youth leader and I, the youth leaders and I, at 5.30 in the morning, uh, drove up to Chicago uh, to sit through a conference about Jesus-centered youth ministry. Uh, and there was a lot of exciting things that were taught and we got to hear and think about and process. But one of the things the speaker said stuck with me because as he was sharing, I really thought about this message and I was like, this fits perfectly in what I'm talking about and what life actually looks like in the midst of living in this world. The speaker discussed what is called the Stockholm Paradox. Now, there was a man named Jim Stockholm, and he was a Vietnam War veteran. And when he was in Vietnam, he was captured and thrown in the worst prison they had. And so in order to survive the torture and what they were doing to them, he came up with this thought how do I handle this situation? Because what he said where there were all these people around him that were so optimistic about getting free that they were dying. He said that they were excited because they knew they would get out by Christmas. And Christmas came and they were like, no worries, we'll get out by Easter. And then Easter came and then Christmas rolled back around and they still weren't out. And they began to die because they had no hope. And he said this statement, which I think is very true of our world and how we live. Essentially, the idea is this, that you must have unwavering hope while never being afraid to confront brutal reality. Meaning as we witness to those around us, as we have to deal with the cost of following Christ, as we have to share with a friend and they may hate us because of it. That's the brutal reality of the world we live in. But the hope is in Jesus. So what happened to Jim? He, was, uh, he started spreading this idea with the other prisoners. And they began to be like joyous in their prison. Like they were able to handle the torture. And so they took Jim and his other fellow prisoners and they moved him to an even worse prison. And in this prison, he was in a tiny cell and he was shackled at the legs at all times. So eventually, uh, he was able to get out when the war ended, and he was no longer able to walk or stand upright. Now, he eventually went through therapy, was able to, but he stood with that thought in his mind that we must have unwavering hope in the reality that is so brutal around us. Jesus doesn't teach the prosperity gospel. He doesn't say that life is, you come follow me, life is going to be perfect and easy. He doesn't say that anywhere. 
He says he's going to provide and take care of us and protect us and answer our prayers, absolutely. But he knows our heart and he knows the reality of the world around us. And in the midst of all of that, we have to remember the reward. The cost is great, but the reward is so much better. Now we're going to take a look at another passage of Scripture. If we turn, turn to Matthew 14, verses 22. Now we all know this story of Jesus as he's walking on water, but I want to make it clear what Jesus has done up until this point in Matthew. See, in, Jesus, in this story, in Matthew chapter 14, as he walks on water, Jesus claims his divinity, that he is God. But what has he done up until this point to show that that is true? Why should we follow him? And I'm going to, this is just up until this point. He hasn't died yet. That's going to happen. And he's going to conquer death. And he's going to rise again for us. That's coming. But these are the things up until this point that he's already done before he even walks on the water. He's healed the sick, cleansed the leper, cured a Roman centurion servant, took away a fever, stilled the wind, exercised demons, restored a paralytic, raised a girl from the dead, made a mute speak, healed a man's withered hand, feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now, that's a man that does miracle, and that's a man that came to sacrifice his life for you. Why not follow him? If you need a reason, there's a reason. He does some amazing things, and the whole point is he came down to point us to God. The cost is great, but the reward is so much better. I'm going to read Matthew 22 here. So, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, it is if, you're, is it, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. As Christ is praying, his disciples head out on a boat. Now, this trip isn't just a lazy day down the river fishing. I know that most of you would like that. Uh, they were traveling in the night on a sea as the waves were growing and the wind was whipping around them. It was probably not a fun trip. They're probably at this point like, Jesus, why would you send us out here in these boats? And right before dawn in the misty haze of the morning, way far away from shore, out on the water, is standing Jesus. He's not following in a boat. He's walking across the water. And they were instantly struck with fear. Jesus quickly reassures them, but in a very unique way. He doesn't say, it's me, Jesus, your teacher, your rabbi, your friend, he says, it is I, which can be translated a little better to I am. Now, you probably remember this, right? The I am from the Old Testament, where God speaks to Moses. In this small statement, Jesus declares his divinity to them. It is I, the great I am, Emmanuel. Jesus stood with waves crashing around him, when everything was breaking loose in the world around his disciples, Jesus stood in the midst of that and he says, I am. And as we stand in the midst of life and ever we feel like everything's crushing around us, if we follow Christ, we can say we stand with the I am. You've seen my power, now know that I am God. 
That's what Jesus declares, and we often think about how hard life is, and I get it, I've been there. I'm there some days of the week, I'm not some other days, because I remember that Christ is the I am. Now, Peter does something very brave and scary. Peter's kind of like the like looked-down upon disciple, even though he's the rock of the church, because he always feels like he, he always does like bad things. But he's really the most outspoken and honest and truthful. And he's probably the most like us. And he's like, Jesus, if you're who you say you are, why don't you call me? Call me out to you. There's some understanding of the power of Jesus in his mind. He's like, if that's really Jesus, I could walk on water too. If he calls me. If Christ calls me to serve him, I could walk on water too. And so Jesus calls him. See, God wants a radical life, but are we willing to be like Peter to be called into it? Are we willing to ask Jesus to call us? Are we so, so fully surrendered and in awe of the Lord that we want him to ask us to jump out of a boat in the middle of a sea. Because I think oftentimes that's what life looks like. We're sitting out in the middle of a place where if you're like me, have no chance of surviving if I fall overboard because I can't swim. And the waves are getting bigger and bigger and the wind is blowing around you, and there's darkness all around, and Jesus is standing there. And are we willing to say, hey, I will step out of this boat if you call me? Because I think oftentimes we are called to serve in various ministries or go to places, and oftentimes we're like, that is way too scary, Jesus. And he's kind of like, I got it under control, what's the problem? But like Peter, are we... Are we willing to say, hey, go ahead and call me out? So what does Jesus do? He calls him to follow him. Now, just so you're aware, if you ask Jesus to do something like that, it's going to happen, and it might be scary. If you ask Jesus to lead you to a church that you feel like you can share the gospel and teach students, it's going to be scary. Chilla Coffee Bible Church is a scary place. Ask Mark. <laughs> it, it's up, we, I, we were uprooted. You know, I think it's oftentimes scary for you guys to go to work and work all week and then know that you have to come serve at the church and then you have to feed your kids and you have to find time for it. I get those are scary, hard things. And you have life to deal with. And one of the things that I love about teenagers is they're brutally honest and they understand what's going on around them, but they feel that crushing weight of all of these things and they don't get it, but Jesus has got it under control. See, the wind is around us and we're scared and terrified, but Jesus will call if we're ready. He sees the waves and the wind and the fears for his life, Peter does. Just like our three volunteers from earlier, and even myself, the idea of stepping out and following Christ is a radical way. It can be exciting and exhilarating, and it can be terrifying and scary. And then when our feet hit the water, when we're finally into the ministry that we're in, we really see the truth about what's going on. Telling your coworker or neighbor about Jesus is scary. Starting in a new ministry is scary. Saying no to sinful behavior is scary. In the moment, most of us, like Peter, instead of keeping our eyes focused on the Savior, we start to look at the waves around us. The minute we get sucked into the distractions, we begin to sink. Peter could have walked across the sea for a long time as long as he just looked at Jesus. And I think oftentimes in life when everything is boiling up around us, we turn away. And the second we turn away, we veer off and we're like, where'd Jesus go? And we don't realize that we have walked away from him and he's still standing there. Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew his desire to follow. 
but he also knew that he struggled. See, I know that there's a desire in the majority of our hearts to actually follow Christ. We have it there. There are so many ministries that take place within this church that couldn't go without you guys. It wouldn't happen. Awana wouldn't happen without all of the leaders. The youth ministry wouldn't happen with the three amazing leaders that I have and four if we're doing an event and Tony shows up. It wouldn't happen. There are so many ministries that take place because you're willing to step out of the boat and follow Jesus. And oftentimes we think about the cost, and I want you to think instead about the reward. What are we going to get? We get eternity with the creator of the universe. That's what we get, and it's scary, but Christ knows that. And so what does he do? Peter steps out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water, and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I can't walk on water. And then he starts sinking. And Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him. Because Jesus also knows that without him, Peter can't walk on water. Peter has seen all of Christ and what he's done. He remembers everything that Christ has done. He's seen him heal a sick and cleanse a leper and cure people and exercise demons and feed thousands upon thousands of people with a basket of food. He's seen that. He knows what Jesus is capable, and you have seen it too. You have seen him provide for ministries within this church and help people within this church and support ministries, and you've seen people go out and share the gospel, you are seeing the miracles that God is capable of. And you get to experience those and have those around you. Yet sometimes when life gets challenging, we begin to doubt. Christ knows our hearts. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what we're scared of. He knows what we're willing to do. But he also knows that he, if we ask, he will call us into something amazing. And then when we sink, he will be there to immediately grab us. When I was at a place in my life where I wanted to stop, stop ministry, Christ reached out his hand and said the same thing to me that he said to Peter. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Like, it was a scary time in my life. We, we had no idea what we were going to do. Like, you don't go to college to be a youth pastor and spend that kind of money if God isn't calling you because that's just crazy. Like, it's really crazy. It's crazy to move your family over to another country in the world and pick up everything you have to serve God. That's crazy. but a God that can heal and create and that would willingly send His Son into this world to die for us, that's crazy love. And so we may be a little crazy if we want to follow Christ. We may be a little radical to those around us. But does that matter? Maybe the cost is hard. But I guarantee you that no cost is as great as the reward. Not even close in comparison. Not even close. Jesus paid the biggest cost that we will ever have so that we could have life and be in a radical relationship with God here and now and for eternity. So what's next? What's next for you? What's next for the students? You know, I believe that God is using our youth leaders to call our students to radical lives. A life that may not look like all the ones around us, that may cause us to make choices that others would reject. That at times we will stand in the middle of a boat on the sea as waves bash all around us. 
In those moments, Jesus will call us to step out of that boat. To walk on the surface that is not only unstable, but that is impossible to do. But we're able to do it. It is in the time that we see the love of Christ that that He has for us. It's in those moments as, as life is tough that we realize that God is surrounding us and taking care of us and providing for us in ways that we don't understand. We see the love of Christ, the power to calm the wind, the waves, and the turmoil of life as He looks into our hearts and He says, don't worry about it, I've already paid the greatest price. We are not just thrown into the deep end of the sea. God knows that I would drown if that happened. Or just a small kiddie pool. I might not make it out of there either. He's called us into a relationship with the Messiah. With the creator of the universe. I love my family. I love you guys. I love the students. But I love Jesus way more. And because of that, because I love God and try to love God with everything I have, I can then follow both of Christ's commands and actually love my neighbor. It's not about love. You just got to be nice and love everyone. I got to love God first. Because without that, we aren't going to be able to really love our neighbors. We're provided a relationship with assurance that no matter what the cost is, no matter what's asked of you or your family, I promise you this, the reward is greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You that Jesus Christ gave His life so that those that believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I thank you for those that stand in this room with questions and concerns and worries because I know that you will step in and you will bring comfort and explanation and understanding. I thank you that when we live our lives, that you are there to pick us up. That as the wind and the waves crash around us, you are standing in our midst. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to worship you through word, through song, through fellowship. I thank you for times like today where we as a family can gather together and praise you for the greatest reward we could ever receive in life. Having a relationship with you through Jesus. Being able to walk in this life in its brutal realities with full hope because of Jesus. And so, Father, in his name, we thank you for all that you do for us. Amen.